UCL Minds brings together the knowledge, insights and ideas of our community through a wide range of events and activities that are open to everyone. Hello everyone and welcome to a new edition of Sample Space, the podcast of the Statistical Science Department here at UCL. My name is Nicolás Hernández and today we have the honor and pleasure to be talking with Kevin Murphy. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invite. As you probably know, Kevin doesn't need much of an introduction, to be honest. He's an excellent researcher who has been in several of the top universities in the world, Cambridge, Berkeley, MIT. Um, now we are leading a research group at the Google DeepMind. And of course, you are the author of one of the most, let's say, well-known books in machine learning. What about uh, starting by the beginning? So how how you decided to go for, for a PhD? And do you have someone who inspired you? Um, I guess my yeah origin story was as a teenager, I grew up in England, I read Gödel Escher Bach um, by Douglas Hofstadter, mm-hmm. um, which I think, I don't remember when it came out um, in the 80s, I think. Um, I think it won a Pulitzer Prize. And it's a very strange book that mixes the discussion of Gödel's theorem and Escher's art and Bach's music. And he talks a lot about AI and consciousness and incomputability and and stuff like that. Anyway, that kind of got me intrigued um, about AI and um, and machine learning. And I studied computer science as an undergrad at Cambridge, and wanted to sort of do more in the in the machine learning AI space. And I got a scholarship to go to the US. As a kid, I'd always sort of dreamed of going to America. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I was lucky to get a scholarship to go to UPenn, where I did my masters. And at Penn, I. Um, they were very strong. They still are very strong in computational linguistics. And I took some classes in that, but I, it didn't really grab me. But I ended up doing a thesis related to computational biology and sequence modeling. So my very first paper is on uh, using finite automata to do st- approximate string matching for DNA sequences. Um, that was a long time ago. And then, um, uh, and then I moved to California for it. So then I decided to stay on for a PhD. So I, I, I liked living in the States and I liked doing research. So that's why I, I started to do a PhD is keep living the student life and, and expanding my mind. <laughs> <laughs> like a good combination. Yeah, yeah. And then just, just a follow-up. Uh, so you mentioned the 80s and you mentioned AI. So I wonder what's, what was AI in the 80s? Well, I mean, I was just a kid then. <laughs> so, but I think at the time, you know, expert systems were the dominant paradigm. And then when I started grad school, like by the time I got to Berkeley, uh, when would that have been? Like 96, I think. Um, I was very interested in graphical models, which is essentially, in fact, one of the main textbooks in the area is called um, Probabilistic Expert Systems. Um, and it's by a bunch of British statisticians, actually. Um, well, Stefan Lawrenson, I don't think is British, but I think he's a professor at Oxford, um, and Cowell, and I forget the other authors. Anyway, 
Um, Phil Dord, I think, is an author um, who's a UCL um, retired professor. So they very much interpreted those models as using expert structure analogous to what expert systems used, but then also incorporating data. So you could update the parameters of the model given data and you could do inference over unknown quantities and, and make predictions and so on. So it was a structured probability model um, that was, I think, the beginning of the transition from a purely manually designed model to a purely data-driven model. Um, and that's sort of an interesting hybrid, which was you know popular for a while and still is used in some cases. But that's you know what I did my thesis on was that model family. Um, these days, you know, there's much more emphasis when you have gigantic amounts of data, then it's less important the form of the model, depending on the questions that you're answering. Um, but uh, in limited data settings, you need to think more carefully about your model. Exactly. That's somehow related to one of the questions you got in the at the end of your talk. Uh, yes. A couple of, a couple of minutes. Yeah, ago. I don't know. Maybe people watching the listening to the podcast won't have seen the talk, but um, yeah, I was giving some big picture talk about like all of machine learning from like a decision theory point of view and how you can think of predictive modeling and unsupervised learning and generative AI as different. I want to, they're not variations on a theme, but they're, they're related in certain ways. They're solving different tasks with different modeling assumptions. So I think the certain tasks require more care and thought about the form of the model. Um, and that largely depends it depends both on the task you're trying to solve, but also the the amount of data that you have. I would say any questions related to causality fundamentally require a model-based approach because you could have infinite data and still fail to infer the true causal effects mm -hmm. if you don't account for you know confounding factors that might not be observed. So um, and and that you know is actually fundamental to many problem settings, but not all, right? If you just want to generate a dialogue agent that is entertaining. It doesn't have to be true, and it doesn't have to have. It's it, in what sense would causality have a role? It's not clear it has any role there, right? But you can then ask it questions about, you know, if I took this drug, would it cure disease X? And people are using these models for such questions, and it's not clear we can trust their outputs. Uh, and there's no reason why we should, because they're not really model-based approaches. They're like data-driven approaches. The model is just a compression of the data. Um, it doesn't have any explicit modeling of, of the underlying reality. Now, there are lots of claims that these large models do implicitly learn models of the world. And I think there's some evidence that they do, otherwise they wouldn't be as effective as they are. But um, it's almost, it's an artifact of the objective, the training objective, like which is a prediction or a compression objective. So they do discover something about the world, but it's in a rather opaque way that's maybe not very easy to leverage for say planning purposes or causal reasoning purposes but there's no doubt that these systems are learning something about the world also by the way um the, your talk is going to be uploaded to our, our youtube channel so okay. again everyone is going to be able to listen to to your talk and to the podcast so <clears throat> so during your answer, you mentioned a probabilistic perspective. So your your book, uh, machine learning a probabilistic perspective. Um, I mean, it has more than I think five thousand citations. Uh, it, it won the Dishot D. Groot Prize, mm -hmm. if I am correct. Mm -hmm. So, what 
what what inspired you to to write this book and basically why a probabilistic perspective well i didn't want to use the word bayesian uh, <laughs> <laughs> because uh that would put a lot of people off and cut my sales <laughs> um and you know that the many of the approaches i use or discuss in that book are not fully bayesian i mean there's a lot of methods the majority of approaches in machine learning are just minimizing a loss function and often that's a log likelihood and therefore they're just doing maximum likelihood estimation so there's really nothing bayesian about that and most machine learning people don't care about uncertainty modeling so um base has nothing to do with it but the models that they're fitting are often probabilistic models and so back then that was not the dominant paradigm the you know certainly for supervised learning the dominant paradigm was thinking about function approximation where there's a you know there's an x y mapping and there's a unique y for every x and the goal is to predict that y and exactly. and it's pretty clear that in general that is not sufficient because there's going to be multiple possible y's for any given x uh, multiple po possible outputs because there might be ambiguity about the input it, you know might be an ill post question or um and i think now you know in in 20 in the 2020s this is now the dominant paradigm everyone's doing probabilistic modeling because transformers are probabilistic models over sequences and it's sort of obvious that predicting the next word there is no unique next word there's a distribution over words i might say next that's more or less entropic and i sample from that distribution and that's how language models work and you know in image generation same thing right i type in a prompt a pretty cat sitting on a flower pot and um there are many many possible images that uh in some senses consistent with that prompt so it's a one-to-many distribution one-to-many mapping so obviously you need a probabilistic method a model to represent that diversity and that uncertainty um so now that's sort of a vacuous statement i mean basically all uh, well i want to say all machine learning is probabilistic i would say the dominant paradigm now is probabilistic but even though it did not used to be and the dominant paradigm is now generative, even though it didn't used to be. So, um, yeah, so it's sort of vacuous now. Um, a footnote on that. So Jan LeCun um, is doing a lot of interesting work, has been doing a lot of interesting work on energy-based models for, for many years. And he is like a violently opposed to thinking of them in terms of probability, probabilistic modeling. And he says that's a unnecessary restriction um, because that requires that you have a normalized distribution that is very difficult to compute the normalization constant. And if you give up on that, then um, it sort of liberates you to try more exotic models. And, you know, I think there's some merit to that argument. You could also argue that the approximations he comes up with are just approximations to the partition function. And he's, a, you know, he's being approximately Bayesian anyway. Um, so, it, you know, then it gets down into the details of specific models and specific inference techniques and approximations and you know you can quibble about whether they're probabilistic or, or not and it doesn't so much matter but i think the key point is that you want to have distributions over things whether they're normalized or not because the world is unpredictable and diverse and um i think thinking about you know one-to-one -one function mapping or, or many to one which is sort of the old school uh, approach is obviously not sufficient right right thank you for that that's a very thorough uh answer for that so uh if you 
if we if we if we go back to 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 your like career path so after being an associate professor in British Columbia University so you took a position at uh, now a Google uh, DeepMind mm -hmm. so could you briefly describe your your journey from academia to industry and so what motivated the transition? Sure, yeah so this is 2012 um um I just got tenure I, I had earned my sabbatical and I thought you know I did my graduate work in California at, at Berkeley and I loved the Bay Area and I thought it'd be nice to go there um, for my sabbatical and I had a lot of friends at Google and they were all raving about it and I thought well it'd be interesting to see what the fuss is about so um, I, I I spent my first six months actually at Stanford finishing my book and then the second six months at Google and and indeed it was a lot of fun but I thought six months wasn't enough so I asked for a leave of absence um, for a one-year leave of absence from UBC And um, so I could sort of dive deeper into stuff at Google. And I applied for a full-time position and got that offer. And then I had to make a hard decision about whether to stay or return to academia. And it was a difficult decision because I was very happy at UBC. But I felt like the the promise of Google um, hadn't, like especially in terms of machine learning, hadn't been fully realized. And it was like going to be a big thing. This is 2012. Now, deep learning was just taking off, right? Um, I was kind of late to the party on that. Um, I was in a meeting very early on in 2012 with Jeff Dean, Tom Dean, who is my host, and uh, Andrew Ng, and we were talking about uh, this, talking about large-scale neural networks and this system that um, came to be known as Dist Belief, which was a precursor to TensorFlow. And Andrew had been scaling up neural nets at Stanford. And Jeff Dean, who's a very famous computer systems guy who's been at Google, he's like employee number two or something. <laughs> he's been there since the beginning. So he invented MapReduce and many large-scale systems at Google that are like, you know, lifeblood of the company. And he's legendary as a as an engineer and 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 really being able to make large-scale systems work. He was very excited about the potential of building just massive neural nets and um having that be sort of a breakthrough technology. And I was not really on that bandwagon. I was sort of watching it happen from the side. So I kind of got into that later, uh, a, few, a few years later. But I thought, you know, that looked like a sort of promising avenue. But to me, the other thing that was promising was to work on video, which is very computationally expensive. So I had been doing more and more computer vision work. Um, and that's ended what I spent most of my first few years at Google doing was working on vision problems. Not I did some video, but I ended up mostly working on image problems and, and got into video later. But I felt like the compute resources that you could get at a company would really be game-changing. Um, and that turned out to be a correct guess. I mean, I didn't, I, I did not predict <laughs> the deep learning revolution and I did not predict the success that we've had. I'm not sure anyone predicted that. Um, Maybe Ilya Sutskeva, uh, maybe, I think he did predict it. I remember we were in grad school together. He was at Toronto. I was at, um, I was a professor at UBC when he was a graduate student at Toronto. And we were at many events together, the CIFAR events that Jeff Hinton organized. And I remember Ilya was extremely evangelical about the, the power of large-scale neural nets. And I was more skeptical, but we, you know, we've seen that he has, been proven correct. <laughs> For those who don't know who I'm talking about, he's, I believe his title is Chief Technical Officer at OpenAI. Um, I don't know, sorry, Ilya, if you're listening, I don't know his exact job title, but in any case, 
he's like employee number three, uh, OpenAI. He's one of the earliest and most important um, technical members there. I think he had a startup. I, I believe he had a startup that Google acquired and, and Hinton had a startup that Google acquired. So, um, you know, during my time there, I've just seen the rise of uh, of the power of machine learning and uh, and the breadth of application. So it's sort of exciting to be on that bandwagon. What do you think are the the key factors that determine the impact of research in the field of machine learning stats? I mean, there's many ways to have impact, right? You can have, you know, a, a really core idea, like, I don't know, amortized variational inference in the VAE, right? That that idea was independently invented by two groups. So um, Dirk Kingman, who's actually on my team at Google, um, and Max Welling, his advisor. And then there was a, a group of researchers at Google DeepMind. Um, and I apologize, but I don't remember who exactly it was. It might have been Dan Weirstra or Shakir Mohammed. I'm not sure, but, um, oh, here we go. It's Danila uh, Rezende and Shakir Mohammed and Dan Weirstra. Their paper is called Stochastic Backpropagation and Approximate Inference in Deep Generative Models. And it's essentially the same as the VAE paper from Kingman Welling, and it came out more or less the same time. Um, but for reasons of history, the Kingman Welling paper is, is cited more. Um, so that was very impactful. Um, I think another way to have impact is through software. So, you know, like PyTorch being open sourced or JAX has indirectly enabled huge amounts of progress, right? Uh, and that tends to not get a lot of credit in the academic system because it's, essentially papers are the only thing that count in academia. But in industrial research labs, you know, we make sure to reward impact along many dimensions. So you can get rewarded for publications, especially, you know, if it's cited a lot or you win a best paper award, but you definitely get rewarded for creating reliable software systems that people use either internally or open source. And, um, you know, maybe your work is patented um, or maybe, you know, there's, you could have what they call thought leadership, right? If you inspire people to work on a certain a pro certain um, set of problems. So, um, um, yeah, so Justin Gilmer, who's also on my team at Google, worked on adversarial robustness for a while. And he was arguing that the sort of epsilon perturbations that people studied were really not very interesting um, attack mechanisms. If you look at like real world adversarial attacks, they're often quite perceptually visible. Like they might superimpose an ad on a cartoon background so it can get through the, you know, let's say the the ad filtering system on YouTube. And a human can tell that it's like one image pasted on top of another. It's not an imperceptible change, but nevertheless, it evades the classifier. And so he sort of made the point that we should be considering robustness to a much larger set of shifts, not just, you know, epsilon ball around the input point. And, um, uh, Anyway, so he had some sort of position paper on adversarial robustness, and then the fields kind of changed. There are still people looking at, you know, epsilon perturbations, but now there's a recognition to be of the need to be robust to much, much broader ranges of attacks, right? And now we see that. Like, I think this is an interesting area where people are trying to break language models by, you know, prompt injection, and um, you know, maybe they change a word, and it's. It may be imperceptible to a human, but often you can kind of tell. But, you know, in language space, it's you can often slip an unusual word in there and it might be undetected. It's not really clear what perceptually 
undetectable means so much. But sometimes you inject the magic word, and then it just breaks the system, and it, you know, you you, you jailbreak all of the RLHF that this the or whatever it is, right? You can coax these systems to emit information that they're not supposed to emit, and so that's a a fun game with important consequences. Um, so I should say it's not just a fun game; it is a fun game, but it's also important that we defend against these things. Going back to to your talk before, also one of the I think the fourth uh, key point of your talk was yeah. generative AI. Yeah. So to be honest, sometimes I see all these teasing developments and and I'm quite afraid of AI. <laughs> so are you afraid of AI or? <laughs> I think the fears are overblown. Um, I know this is obviously heated debates on both sides. Um, actually, I saw something on Twitter today. Apparently, Nick Bostrom, um, who is in the UK somewhere, Oxford, perhaps. Uh, anyway, um, he apparently has just been interviewed, and he even he thinks that the fears about AI are overblown, and he's worried that now governments will overregulate and will kill or stop the AI train, and um, you know progress will won't won't be made because the fears are being exaggerated. Um, so, I I think some fears are exaggerated. Like I think discussion of extinction. Um, is a red herring. We're not, clearly not going to go extinct uh, in the literal sense. Um, on the other hand, I think there are more pressing short-term concerns that are important and we should worry about, things like misinformation, especially in the context of elections or uh, blackmail. Um, and um, fake media in general is definitely an important problem. And there are issues around copyright and, you know, correct compensation for artists and using the material for training models. So these are all very difficult issues um, that are important. I, I don't think they're existential threats to humanity. They're just adding entropy to the system that we already live in, right? You can already create fake media with Photoshop and various tools. Um, these new generative AI just make it easier to do that at scale. Like it makes it cheaper and it lowers the barrier to entry. So more people can do it. So it's a question of degree rather than kind. I, I think they don't fundamentally, maybe in the context of creating fake imagery and voices, it really is something that you couldn't do uh, uh, easily before. Um, and for fake images, that's also true, but like people have been doing fake media for a while. One of my colleagues, Chris Bregler at Google, um, he specializes in this area. And he told me that the concerns about fake media um, being generated by AI are somewhat misplaced. The main concern is people taking information out of context. So they might show a photo, let's say, of a bombing, um, which they claim is in Gaza or maybe in Israel. And in fact, it was taken 10 years ago. Um, and then they use that photo to accompany some narrative to tell the story that they're telling. And it's real, it's a real photo and it's real text. There was no AI involved. But it's misleading because the photo was actually, they, they lied about the location of it, or they just, maybe they didn't lie. It, it was true. The location is correctly stated, but the date, they didn't mention the date. They didn't say, yeah, right. So there's a essentially um, deception, like intentional deception on the uh, done by a human for some political purpose. That already happens, right? And that has nothing to do with AI. And that's actually much more common. And after... You know, a few years ago, some of these um, uh, generative image systems were available and working very well, like GANs, right? For, at least for face images. So 
when they started coming out, people started worrying about fake media. And what he tells me is that, you know, it never really was a problem in practice. Like people were not using GAN, gener GAN generators to make fake images for purposes of political campaigning or blackmail, at least not at scale. Um, and the sort of deliberate deception or misinformation um, was the dominant concern. Now, maybe the newer technologies, diffusion models and language models are different than GANs um, because certainly the quality is better and, uh, and it will become, and the tooling is perhaps easier to use. So it's possible that um, it, that will be more of a problem in the future. But uh, though I, I think it is something we need to worry about. Um, but um, I'm not so worried about humans going extinct or being taken over by machines. I mean, we ultimately build these things and control them. And uh, I think there's a lot of fantasizing about science fiction inspired fantasizing about <laughs> uh, superhuman AIs enslaving us. And I, I think it distorts, it just, it distracts from these other things. It's not like that's impossible, but I think there are many more pressing concerns that are not getting enough airtime. Great. So now I have to say I, I feel some relief <laughs> <laughs> in terms of my fear. So I think we are uh, trying to, to close this. I, I would like to ask you a couple of two more questions, if you don't mind. So do, do you have like a, a particular message uh, for early career researchers or PhD students in, in statistics or machine learning? I know, at least in the machine, I don't know about um, what's on the mind of statistics students. I think in machine learning, many students these days are worried that there's either nothing left to do because, you know, chat GPT has solved all problems or that they want to get a piece of that action but can't because they don't have access to compute. And I would say there are still interesting problems that you can work on as an academic. Um, so I think things like, well, the sort of the science of deep learning, like why do these large systems work as well as they do? That's not well understood. And it's true that you may need access to these models to answer that question, but you don't need to be able to train them. You can just treat them as artifacts. It's like almost like archaeology, right? There are these pottery shards that you found and you want to know like what was the process that created them. So you're studying um, the behavior of these systems from maybe a statistical physics point of view or um, so I think that's interesting and important because we need to understand how these systems work so we can control them. And then I think, as I mentioned in my talk, I think there are a lot of applications of machine learning in the sciences where you need maybe more bespoke modeling efforts that are sensitive to the details of the domain. And you can't just inhale the whole internet to train a massive black box model because you don't have enough data. So you need to think about where the data comes from. Maybe you use the model to help you do data acquisition. Um, and uh, those problems are maybe more within reach <laughs> of students because um, you, the models, the size of the models are maybe smaller. And furthermore, you have access to colleagues in other departments who are domain experts in chemistry or biology or environmental science. So in for those kinds of problems, universities should be better positioned than companies because companies usually don't have chemists and biologists on their staff. I mean, they do in some places, but not in large numbers. Yeah. So, um, you know, universities are multidisciplinary institutes. So I would suggest leveraging that multidisciplinarity where possible.
just just uh, to close, uh, what what's the moment in your career that convert you in the research that you are now? <laughs> I don't know if there's a single moment. Um, I do, because I, I've had a meandering path. I do remember a very inspiring talk by David Heckerman um, about Bayesian networks. And uh, I was at the Santa Fe Institute Summer School uh, in the early 90s, I think. And David Heckerman, um, to the, for those who don't know him, was a researcher at Microsoft uh, for many years and did early pioneering work on BayesNets. Um, and now I think he works at Amazon. Uh, anyway, but he gave a great talk. And that was the first time I'd heard about that model family. And I was, I, I thought this is the coolest thing. And then that's what I ended up doing my PhD on. So that was a very um, influential moment on me. Um, right, right. Yeah. And then I mentioned the Hofstadter book. And uh, yeah, in Chris Bishop's book, when I was teaching, I read that and I thought, oh, yeah, this is really great. I mean, that was sort of building on, that has a very graphical models perspective as well. But, you know, then op expands the set of things you can do with it by using variational inference. So it really, you know, makes that tool set more broadly applicable. Great. Okay, well, I think I think that that's all for today. So thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. I hope you have enjoyed. And uh, thank you, everyone. I hope you have enjoyed this. And uh, see you later. Bye.